I'm Will Fulton, and this is Thrillist Explorers. Emma Svensson. I was a fashion photographer and then I started doing all these adventures. So these days I live in my van and I travel around the world and climbing mountains. Five years ago I was on a plane to New Zealand to do research for a photography tour I was doing there and I watched the movie Everest and I just felt oh my god I have to do this. I have to climb mountains. I have to climb Everest. And then I came home to my fiancé, we were just getting married, and I told him about my new plans, and he just said, oh, but someone like you can't do something like that. And that was pretty much the end of it. Then after our wedding, he left me six weeks after the wedding. That was, of course, heartbreaking and sad, but on the other hand, I could go climb all these mountains. But the thing is that I don't have any role models in this, you know? I grew up never hearing about any women climbing mountains. Uh, all the stories I heard were about these super hardcore men, and uh, they were the ones in the movies, in the books, on the stage, they were the ones um, talking about climbing mountains. It was hard for someone like me, just a regular girl, to understand that I actually could be a part of this world. Within two years, Emma climbed Mount Whitney, the tallest mountain in the contiguous United States, and Mount Elbrus, the tallest mountain in Europe. So I climbed the highest mountain in Europe, what should I do now? And then I got this crazy idea, what if I climb the highest mountain in every country in Europe? And then the next week I climbed Mont Blanc, and then I climbed 61 mountains in one year. And it was impossible to go back to a normal life after doing this project. Yeah, those first couple days, well, the first passage, the trip to Bermuda, was a very steep learning curve. There was a lot to figure out. I'd never been on a boat by myself. I'd never sailed this boat. But the biggest takeaway from that first passage was um, that I liked it, that I wasn't terrified of being in the middle of the ocean by myself, and that it was that was cool. Then I kept going. In 1985, when Tanya Abbey was 18 years old, she cast off from the South Street Seaport in Manhattan and ended up sailing 27,000 miles around the world, all alone. I was pretty constantly aware of the danger or, or the risk of not making it. But then again, to put it into context of the rest of life, life is dangerous. So it was just much more black and white out there. It felt more real and more present, but in the end, you know, my dad had given me a car when I was 16 on a Jersey Turnpike, probably not such hot chances there either. I've learned that there really is no other place other than the middle of the ocean, alone on my tiny little boat, that I could feel simultaneously the littlest speck of nothingness at the same time as the master of my universe. So it was awesome and humbling in a really big way at exactly the same time. And that feeling was constant and it was pretty cool. And I don't know that I could have expressed it like that then but I could feel it. I think people maybe at home or people that didn't know me were more doubting because I was a female. 
So Tanya, I know we were talking about this before, but you've never heard of Helen Thayer, right? Is she still alive? Is she American? Yeah, like I said, because not having heard of her doesn't mean that I'm, I kind of live under a rock sometimes too. So Emma, there's this woman named Helen Thayer. She is a fellow mountain climber. She's actually, you know, done things like trekking to the magnetic North Pole and walking across the Sahara Desert. Have, have you ever heard of her? Unfortunately not. That's so cool. No, it sounds super cool. I definitely want to Google her and learn everything I can. Helen Thayer is not a household name. In fact, even people in her distinct line of adventure sports have never even heard of her. But for someone like Emma, who ditched her cosmopolitan lifestyle to climb mountains and live in a van, or Tanya, who at an extremely young age decided to sail around the entire globe by herself, Helen should be like their Wayne Gretzky or their Serena Williams. Her list of accomplishments, many done after the age of 50, are so extreme, so bold, it's hard to imagine one person doing everything she's done. And I was lucky enough to speak with her. Well, my name is Helen Thayer, and I uh, come from New Zealand, but I'm also uh, an American citizen living in Washington State. I'm a writer. I also run a small farm, a goat farm. Some of my accomplishments are that I've represented three countries in international track and field and represented the United States. And I was also the United States national lose champion. But my second life, you might say, started when I was 50 years old and I became the first woman to uh, ski alone to the magnetic North Pole. Then I continued on to uh, other expeditions walking 4,000 miles across the Sahara, and then from Morocco to the Nile River, and then uh, I, I walked uh, 1,600 miles across the Gobi Desert. So those are uh, a few of the things that I've done over the years. Helen was born on November 12, 1937, on a 10,000-acre farm in New Zealand. And my early life was uh, very outdoors. In fact, my parents also liked to climb mountains as a hobby. My first mountain climb was at nine years old in the winter, Mount Taranaki in the North Island of New Zealand. My parents were very, very encouraging all the time uh, to me and, and whatever I wanted to do, they supported me. In those days, young women didn't uh, do the things that we're able to do these days. One of my childhood mentors was Sir Edmund Hillary the first person to summit Mount Everest. My very close family friend, and uh, he was an absolutely amazing man and very influential in my young life. If you're unfamiliar, Sir Edmund Hillary is one of the most renowned explorers to ever live. Being a young adventurer mentored by Sir Edmund Hillary would be like getting guitar lessons from Jimi Hendrix. Sermon Hillary, we always just called him Ed, of course. And on my first climb of Mount Taranaki uh, at age nine, uh, uh, he was with my parents accompanying me on that climb. He had a lot of wisdom to pass on to a young girl. And it was a mentor-type relationship. He believed, as my parents did, they all believed that women had a right to get out and do what they wanted to do and not be restricted by social norms, so to speak. 
very uh, aware that women had a very important part in life and should be encouraged to get out and do, uh, especially in the outdoors and, uh, and, and in, in a world of physical endeavor. Mount Taranaki in New Zealand is over 8,000 feet tall. And as Helen mentioned, her introduction to mountain climbing was scaling it with her parents and Ed when she was nine. This was in the winter. And of course, halfway up that mountain, my legs had turned to lead. I was just so tired. And I can remember even now, just putting one foot in front of the other was just an effort. But my father said, you know, you don't climb a mountain in one long step. In one step at a time will do it. Finally, or take all those steps, you'll find yourself on the summit. My mother kept saying, just keep visualizing yourself standing on that summit, and that will draw you up there like a magnet. And Ed kept saying, come on, you can be an example to little girls of your age. They can get out and do these things. Remember what you're doing. You can do it uh, because you're a girl. It makes it special. Let's see you do it. Let's see you take those steps. And, and he kept encouraging me all the way up as well. So all the encouragement that I had basically lifted me to the summit of that mountain. As she grew older, Helen became a professional athlete, running track and field in international competition. In her 20s, she met her husband, Bill Thayer, an American helicopter pilot who was also a certified badass. And in the 1970s, she did what many people in their mid-30s do. She decided to become a world-class loser. And I gave myself two years to win the United States National Championship. And I I made the the, uh, national team also that year. 1975, and then I quit because um, I was in Innsbruck uh, with the national team, and I just saw those mountains around Innsbruck, and I just, I just knew that my time on the luge track, I've got what I want, the national championship, I'm on the national team, I need to get back into the mountains. I went to Mexico and climbed the three, the three volcanoes, and I climbed Mount Denali, and uh, three times, and then I went to to uh, Europe, I climbed uh, Lenin, Peak Lenin and uh, Peak Communism and some of these higher mountains around the world. So it was a happy decision. Well, I'd climbed many high mountains around the world and I enjoyed the experience, met a lot of people. I had also lost a lot of friends due to various mountaineering accidents. and. I decided one day, perhaps I should ease off on these big mountains. And then uh, I began studying the magnetic North and South Pole. The geographic North Pole is at the very top of the world. And uh, I'd always been fascinated by polar bears. And I thought, now if I could learn to live among them, I might be able to make it safely to to the pole. And so after some inquiry, I found that, oh, no woman had ever done this before. And I thought, well, that would be an interesting uh, step to take uh, in my life. Then I went north to live with the Inuit because I knew that living among polar bears, I had a lot to learn. And so I relied on them to teach these people the masters of Arctic survival. They taught me how to deal with the polar bear, what to do when I would meet one. They taught me about the weather systems of the Arctic. 
What is it like to walk across the Arctic Ocean? Because you're not walking on land, you're walking across a layer of ice covering an ocean. A very different experience than being on land. I'd have to pull my own sled with all my gear, and so that was all part of my training. I brought an Inuit dog, a polar bear dog from the Inuit. I called him Charlie, and, and he was at my side to help protect me from polar bears. So along with her dog, Charlie, who factors into a few of her adventures, she took what she learned from the Inuits, bought a sled, and headed on skis to the magnetic North Pole. And her initial assumption was definitely right. She ran into a lot of polar bears. Well, I actually encountered seven on seven different occasions. And people say, oh, you're so brave and so forth. No, the bravery has nothing to do with it. It's, you're scared half to death. That's all there is to it. If you're not scared, there's definitely something wrong with you. I, I discovered it's how do you handle that fear? That's the important thing. It's not You're not standing there brave and saying, I'm standing up to this bear, I will conquer it. No, you're not going to do that. That's a good way to get yourself killed. Instead, you have to handle that fear. You've got to have the confidence in your training. You've got to be clear thinking and do exactly what you're supposed to do. So in case you ever find yourself in a similar position, here's Helen's guide to facing down a polar bear in the Arctic wilderness. It might come in handy one day. And I've been taught that, you know, make yourself as big as possible, stand alongside your tent or your sled or something, uh, making yourself more of a formidable target, keep uh, eye contact, don't look away because they look at that as a start of flight, and certainly never run because you'll never win the race. And the polar bear will see that as, as its quarry fleeing, and they will be very happy to give chase. And, but my dog, Charlie, he will step in front, and with his growling and his snarling, that helped keep the bears back. He was a huge detriment. But it also had a flare gun. would fire these flares out to land in a row in front of the bear. And the bears had never seen anything like this before. And so they, and that acrid smelling smoke would come up from the, from the flares on the ice, forming this curtain of acrid smelling smoke across, across their path. And they didn't like that. So what was Charlie, my uh, polar bear dog and my flare gun and the knowledge that I'd gained from the Inuit was the way that I was able to survive these uh, polar bear encounters. My goodness, the journey was almost a month long. I was scared to death every waking moment. I was scared half to death. And after reaching the pole on their way back to base camp, Helen and Charlie got caught in a windstorm that almost killed them. Charlie and I were sheltering behind the sled, keeping down low because the winds were tremendously strong and chunks of ice were flying through the air and it was really bad. And then... I found that during the storm, uh, the wind had acted like a vacuum and it just sucked a lot of my gear and, and my food and, and supplies out of my sled and it just simply disappeared. I found with my food, I would have five walnuts for each of the next seven days and uh, most of my fuel had blown away so I could, I could only melt a little bit of ice each day for water. Fortunately, only half of Charlie's food had blown away, so he was okay. Well, I was determined that I was not going to give up at that point. I'd been thrown through so much, what was with broken ice, storms, polar bears, cold, and wind, and 
just everything that the Arctic could throw at me, and I was determined I'm not going to give up. I'm going to see these seven days through somehow. It got pretty desperate at times, but I kept putting... Remember the lesson I learned on Mount Taranaki when I was nine years old? Just get one foot in front of the other and you'll finally get there, and that's what I did. Going through all those trials and tribulations made that journey even more precious to me because of what I had to go through. And, and also at that time, I was really a pioneer of sorts because women were not out doing this sort of thing at that time. Helen and Charlie made it back to safety, obviously, but her experience with the polar bears gave her the idea to study other Arctic wildlife. Several years later, Helen, her husband Bill, and her dog Charlie headed to the Canadian Yukon, where they set out to live less than 100 feet from an active wolf's den. Well, wolves taught us a lot of lessons, and we really taught them nothing, of course, but if human beings could act more like wolves, we'd be a lot better off. They're not the uh, fierce, mean, killing machines. They're not like that at all. They do hunt animals, of course. They're predators, and they're part of uh, an important part of the environment to keep the herds of elk, deer, and so forth in, in reasonably controlled numbers. So they're a very important part of the environment. We decided to, to go to the Canadian Yukon. After a full summer of reconnaissance, we found a den that was very remote. Now, we didn't know if this would work, but Charlie was part wolf, and he'd been raised among juvenile wolves in the Arctic. Now, my husband and I, we thought, well, it could be that Charlie might be a link between we as humans, his human companions, and the wolves. It took us quite a while to approach the den and to find a a place where they were comfortable with us. Uh, about 100 feet from the den, which was remarkably close. But we were able to camp there and we were able to study them up close. And so uh, it was the most fulfilling experience of my entire life, just watching these animals and on a daily basis. They're very close-knit family. They uh, take care of each other. The whole family raises the pup. And the life around the den is very relaxed, very friendly a very family-oriented. One wolf came back and had been gored by a moose in a hunt, and uh, he was pretty badly injured. He lay down at the den entrance. Some of the other wolves came to nurse him and lick his wounds, take care. Other wolves went away and hunted and brought food back to him, and he did recover completely due to their care. They didn't neglect him, not for one minute, day and night. Amazingly strong, family structure that's built on respect, discipline, and love. And uh, it was just so inspiring to us to see this up close every day and just, just watch, just watch these animals act in a way that we should act. So we need to take a quick break, but when we get back, we hear about Helen ditching her Arctic adventures for something a little bit warmer, much much warmer. This includes a band of rebels that put her and her husband in a firing squad, killer bees in the Amazon, and food poisoning in Death Valley. Trust me, you're going to want to stick around. My husband and I were the first man, first woman to cross the Sahara from Morocco 
to the Nile. Our route took us right basically through the center of the Sahara, through the minefields and the uh, Tanzeroff Desert and these sorts of places. It took us just over seven months. We called it the journey from hell. Three weeks into it in Algeria, we were captured and by rebels. We were stood up side by side for execution. We, we managed to get out of that just by the skin of our teeth, you might say. And here's another applicable life lesson from Helen. How to escape an execution by a band of rebels in the Sahara Desert. We're about to be shot. My husband said, ask permission from our captors if he could put his hand in, my, in his pocket and take out a GPS. He said, Helen gave this to me as a gift. And it would mean a lot to me to hold it as I die. And as I heard this, I thought, what in the world is he talking about? And so, anyway, he pulled the GPS out. And then he pretended to punch in a, a message on the keypad. And then he said, I've just sent a message to base camp. And they're going to have a helicopter and the team will be out here within minutes because our base camp's not far away. Well, I was I was just amazed. I thought, they're never going to believe this because you can't send a message on a GPS. Anyway, these people believed it because they were not very well educated. They were, they were desert rebels and uh, they didn't know and they bought the story. Well, they loaded everything back up on that truck and they took off as fast as they could go, leaving us standing there just amazed that we had survived this. And uh, I said to my husband, his name's Bill, I said, what in the world made you think of that wild story? He said, I have absolutely no idea. It just popped into my mind and that's what I said and it worked. And so that's how we got out of that one. That was a sheer miracle. That is one of the most amazing stories I've ever heard in my entire life. That's so wild. Yeah, I, I, think, I, think, I think somebody above us was taking good care of us. Her experience walking the Gobi Desert, on the other hand, was a little less stressful. I mean, relatively. The Gobi Desert nomads, uh, uh, we were never robbed. They're very honest and very good people. We had a great time walking those six... 1,600 miles across the Gobi. We did have one problem in the middle of it um, where uh, one of our camels who was carrying the water that day rolled and split the water containers. And we were nine days from resupply. And we figured uh, we only had about five days of water on half ration. And we were having to walk this desert in the summer because in the winter the Gobi is a very cold can get down to minus 40 degrees, very cold, it's a whole different journey. We struggled on and uh, we reached the eighth day where we were so uh, desperate for water and so dehydrated that we really felt that there probably would not be another day for us because we were in the process of just basically dying a third. And, and uh, it's a terrible way to be, it's, it's, a, terrible, it's a terrible thing. One thing that really saved us was on that last day, we came across a stretch of water probably about 20 feet across by another 20 feet or so. It was left over from a, there might have been a spring under there, but it was, uh, it was filthy water um, and quite salty. 
but we had a desalinization unit with us and the best $500 we'd ever spent in our life. And we filtered that water and that's really what saved us through the night to when resupply came in. Helen and her husband, Bill, decided to take a different mode of transportation for their next adventure, a kayak down the Amazon River. Helen was the first non-Indigenous woman to paddle the entire length of the Amazon River. And in classic Helen Thayer fashion, it was even harder than it sounds. We came to one place where there were some illegal gold miners on the bank. They saw us and started shooting at us. And we were both in our own inflatable kayak. Well, to be shot at in an inflatable kayak is not a good experience. So we paddled. No Olympic kayaker could have kept up with us. And we shot around that next bend with the speed of an arrow. So as soon as we could, we beached our kayaks and went up into the jungle and hid, um, hid there for the next 24 hours to make sure we weren't being followed. And then there was another time when we were swarmed by a swarm of bees. Well, there's only one way to get rid of those, is we were covered in bees. The only one way to do it is that to dive into the water. But the problem is, we were in an area of fairly still water, and this is where piranha like to live. Over the years, we've learned that you worry about the problem of the moment and worry about the problem of the future some other time. And so we just dived into the water, and fortunately, we didn't have any problems with piranhas but we were able to scrape those bees off us in the water. Um, and then, of course, we went into this anaphylactic reaction, but we had a, the correct antidote for that. We were able to give each other a shot and just kind of sit a while for that to take effect because we were very badly stung, very, very badly stung. We were very lucky to get out of that because the anaphylactic reaction, when it set in, it was quite severe, but we did have the right uh, EpiPen with us to counteract it. Despite all this, or maybe because of it, Helen has not given up her adventures even as she approaches her mid-80s. Though a few years ago, Bill, her husband and partner in so many of her travels, passed away before they could undertake their next passion project, walking 200 plus miles across Death Valley National Park. We had used Death Valley for many years, training for our desert treks. And one day he said, you know, why don't you and I just go without any resupply, walk the full length of it because nobody has done it before. But he passed away due to an accident. And so I decided, well, I will do it solo and I'll make the journey in his memory. And I thought, you know, Death Valley, yeah, I know know it's a desert and there to be no water. I'd have to haul everything in a cart. And I thought, you know, this is probably going to be the tamest journey I've ever taken on my life. It's only at 225 miles or so, and this is not going to be a big deal. Well, I should have remembered over the years that nothing comes easy on these journeys, and halfway into it, I hit that. I uh, My day food had mold, gone moldy. I didn't realize it ate it, got food poisoning. And one of the rangers came along and saw me staggering, and they wanted to take me to the hospital, and I said, no. I'm not going to go to the hospital because I might never come back and finish this journey and I am going to finish it because I'm doing this in my husband's memory and he would want me to finish this and I'm doing it. So I went on the same thing, one step at a time. And I thought, I can remember distinctly thinking, 
Is there any way I can ever take on a long journey like this and not have something serious happen to where I have to go into the one step at a time concept? So that journey, that taught me that, no, don't set out on anything and expect everything to go right because something is going to go wrong somewhere. So we've heard some of Helen's stories over the past half hour, and it's really easy to marvel in her accomplishments. Even being able to talk with her is a true honor for me. But one thing she hasn't covered is the why. Obviously, something has driven her to boldly go where, in many cases, no woman had actually gone before. Though, in her mind, that was never the impetus for her adventures just to be the first woman. I've never got up on my soapbox and preached to the world that women can do this or that. What I've done really is I've had a lot of ambition, a lot of, uh, I'm a goal setter and a planner. I like to go out and meet challenges. I'm, I really feed on challenge. And so I go out there to do what I want to do as a, as a person, whether I'm a man or a woman or whatever, I'm, I just want to do it. Being a woman, when I do these things, if they can motivate other women, other young girls, then I've achieved something in life. Rather than saying, well, I'm going out to prove that a woman can do this. I don't need to do that. I just go out, do what I want to do, and meet those challenges, um, and take on those goals, and, and win my way through. That's really what it's all about. Since 1988, I've spoken to over a million kids in school. My messages are always motivational. Set goals, plan for success, believe in yourself. You can go out there and you can do anything. I have a good friend. She uh, got breast cancer. She's recovering. There are times when she's felt very discouraged. But I've said to her, one step at a time, one stage at a time. When you do something, you do it that day, you mark that day off, you don't have to do that again, you've done it. It applies to everything. Rather than stopping and thinking, woe is me, I can't do this. Once you do that, you're done. Always taking that step forward. Don't look back, always look forward. Some of the things that you've done in the past might have seemed rather dumb, stupid, and even wrong. But don't look back. Learn from those experiences and take that experience and go forward. Don't look back. Keep looking forward. We want to thank Helen Thayer for joining us and sharing her stories and some of her inspiring words. If you want to hear more from Helen, which I don't know why you wouldn't, She's written several books about her journeys, including an upcoming release about her trek through Death Valley. We have a link to her website in our description. I think you know what to do.
This show is produced by myself and Mia Fask, edited and mixed by the otherworldly Dean White and Abby Austria. Special thanks to all of my bosses, Jim D'Amico, Megan Kirsch, Brett Kushner, and Emily Feld. That's it for us. Put your tray tables up, leave your shoes on, and we'll see you next week. Bye.